Any success that comes from you just reacting to a situation isn't repeatable because you don't know why you did it or how you did it. So let's gather the facts and the information before we make a decision of what we want to do next. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to a brand new season of the Startup Sensations podcast. This is now season three with me, Belent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the Northern California coast. Hi, Belent. How are you? Very well, Shelley, and a happy new year to you as well. How's your year started all the way there in California? Well, thank you. Uh, it started well, got a bit of relaxation in over the holidays and raring to go. So looking forward to this new season very much. And today we've got a very special episode and it's slightly different really to the ones that we did in season one and season two, because we have on the show a double Olympian. He's a performance coach and also he's a mental health ambassador to a number of British businesses here in the UK. His name is Jack Green and he was an Olympic runner. His uh, event was the 400 meters hurdles and he's been at two Olympic Games representing Great Britain, uh, the 2012 Olympics here in London. But also, four years later, he was in Rio for the 2016 Olympics. He's had some challenges with his mental health, and he'll no doubt want to talk about that. And now he's using his experience to help progress mental health issues, especially in the corporate world. I am really looking forward to this. I'm eager to hear what he has to say. And, you know, as you allude to, there are so many parallels between the kind of pressures and stresses that founders in the business world face and athletes face. And I've never talked to an Olympian before, so I am looking forward to it. I'm delighted to welcome Jack Green, who now joins us all the way from Canterbury in Kent here in the UK. Uh, Jack, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really good. I've been excited about this, uh, being able to speak a a bit of business alongside, obviously, my journey and, and my passions as well. Lovely to meet you. I'm really looking forward to hearing all about everything you've done. It's pretty impressive, I have to say. Thank you, Shelley. Yeah, looking forward to sharing. And Jack, can we start off with uh, you telling us what you're doing today? What what keeps you busy and occupied today? That's quite a big question at the moment. Um, probably the biggest job I currently have is I'm a new parent. So that's that's number one. I have a four-month-old at home. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but apart from that, I am still coaching in, in track and field. So I have athletes that I look after professional athletes and helping them with their preparations. Um, But then I also work in in commercial. So still in wellbeing tech, supporting a startup at the moment in how they can become a scale up and and move forward, which is a challenge as all startups are, but some one challenge I'm kind of really enjoying at the moment. We described you as a, a double Olympian, a performance coach and a mental health ambassador. But can I just take you back in time, really, to when you were seven years old? Because I hear that Actually, you wanted to be a zookeeper and an archaeologist. Is that is that right? You've done some very good research. I didn't. Oh, normally, I have to bring this one up. No one's ever brought it up before. So yes, you've done really good research. It's still very much the case. I still love animals and dinosaurs, and it's probably where my passion actually is. But like most of us at primary school, 
that's where I found out I was good at something. So I ran around a, a grass track to make the primary school team for our district sports. I beat everyone by a country mile and thought, quite like winning things. And I quite like being told I'm good at something. I, I don't think it mattered that it was running. I just liked the praise. But that's where my journey kind of began. And um, yeah, animals and dinosaurs were pushed to the side as I decided at the age of seven, I was going to become a Olympic athlete and well in my head an Olympic champion so Maurice Green was my hero at the time uh, those who you know follow athletics will know he was Bolt before Bolt and uh, I wanted to be an entertainer and a 100 meter runner like him wasn't quite what I did in my my journey but yeah so that was the very start of it and at, at a pretty young age you made the British Olympic team so tell us about how you broke through into Team GB and this was ahead of the London 2012 Olympics, wasn't it? So that must have been exciting for you, think, you know, hoping to compete in a home Olympic Games. That's the thing. I'm really fortunate. So within my event, my sport, in the 400 meter hurdles, you peak between the ages of 28 and 32. But by the age of 18, I went professional. At 19, I represented Great Britain at a senior world championship. So I was ranked 16th in the world. Within that one year from being 18 to 19, I went from 105th in the world overall to 16th. That was one year out from London 2012. And I, in my head, was like, right, it was easy to go from 105th to 16th. Why can't I go from 16th first? And started my my really intense another level up journey to becoming Olympic champion. And yeah, 2012 was an interesting experience. And my journey sounds simple to becoming a professional, but I come from a single parent family, very working class. I was just very fortunate to have physical abilities and the mental abilities as well to be able to train and and become very successful early on. But it wasn't always the healthiest abilities, which led me to 2012. And I was ranked sixth in the world. I finished fourth in the relay. I missed a medal by 0.13 of a second, but I fell in the hurdles. And that was my big trigger moment. The hurdles was a really tough experience because the people who ended up coming first and second in those Olympics, I'd beaten all season. And two weeks before the Olympic Games, I'd beaten them again. And it felt like as a young person with a lack of emotional intelligence and and kind of life experience, it felt like it was unfair that life was being cruel to me specifically and that other people were living my dream. And the other bit that I couldn't take was I didn't give myself the opportunity to see how good I could be because I got in my own way. I was full of fear. I was full of so much negativity and worrying about all the things I couldn't control and the noise around me that I had no clarity. I went into that race. I didn't want to be there, which is really sad considering at the age of seven, I was writing stories about achieving that dream. And only 13 years later, I was doing it and at a high level. And yet I didn't want to be there because I was full of fear. That's where my big journey began. You you mentioned the mental health and master work. Within six months of finishing fourth Olympics and falling, I was diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies and anxiety. I was considered a threat to my own life. And at this point, I was top 10 in the world, fourth Olympics. I was voted the most talented athlete of a generation in Britain out of any sport. And yeah, at that point, I was really struggling. And that's really sad for someone who was only 20 years old living their dream. Someone who was incredibly successful and had the world at their feet actually was was really struggling. With the benefit of, of over a decade of hindsight from, from that moment, um, can you pinpoint a time when this started for you, you know, these struggles? I mean, it's sad to hear that, you know, you're, you're at an Olympic semi-final and in front of your home crowd, you know, to then hear that you, you didn't want to be there. 
Where do you think all this started and, and why? Why did it start, do you think? This is a full therapy session if we wanted to go deep into that. <laughs> That's something I've, I've talked about many a time going back to childhood. But I can tell you now, I, I had a mindset, really brutal mindset that still comes out at times. I'm quite obsessive and I'm quite intense. It's why I was successful early. I also believed I was better than everyone else. But I also understood everyone was a human being, so no one was above me. That led to me being able to be successful quickly. But this black and white brutal mentality was also my downfall because there was no kindness, there was no forgiveness within what I expected of myself and the demands and the intensity I demanded, and it wasn't sustainable. And I can tell you now, in in hindsight, I struggled with anxiety all through my childhood um, around what people think and trying to live up to expectations. I was a perfectionist from very early doors. I'm, I'm fortunate my mum is a child wellbeing and behavioural specialist. She says, looking back, there's so many things now with, with her knowledge and experience that she's like, I can see these, these things were, were creeping in, particularly around perfectionism. But those things are also why I was successful quickly. It just didn't lend to me be, being successful for a long time. And that's the problem. It wasn't sustainable. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've struggled and battled with that the whole time. But I think why it didn't really get picked up was because I was always successful. I was always overcoming the challenge that was put in front of me. I was always winning things. So when I go and as a junior become top three in the world as a junior athlete, when I'm training twice a week in my local town, people think, well, there can't be a problem with Jack. He's at, he's able to perform at this incredibly high level. So there can't be an issue because we were so, we split well-being and, and mental health. We'd split that from performance. Whereas what I know now and how I coach, how I teach, how I work is well-being as a foundation to high performance, but also as a human being, you will experience these ups and downs and that's okay. You are a human being 24 hours a day. You are an athlete or a founder or whatever it might be for a part of that. You might think founder is 24 hours. It can be if you, you do it that way, but the reality is you are more than that in your identity and we need to start understanding that because when the wheels fall off of your one identity, that's where we're going to really struggle. In my case, I was only an athlete and my self-worth was attached to that. So yeah, there was lots of workings, as you can tell. I know quite a bit about myself and my journey now and, and try and help as, as many people as possible to find that right way to win and that sustainable way to win, which is something, yeah, which is appropriate for, for founders and within my commercial experience and my startup journeys that I've been in. I've been a, a bit of a mentor and a coach for the, the founders I work with to try and bring that sustainable excellence rather than burning out after whatever short time that is. We've talked with various founders. Um, we like to compare contrast US and UK, Europe. And one of the things we've talked about is in the US, and I'm being very general here, it's okay to fail. In fact, it's sort of good to fail and demonstrate that you can fail and bounce back. So it doesn't have the stigma. Do you think that a little bit of that was cultural, that that growing up in the UK, there is just generally this feeling that it's not good to fail? I mean, no one wants to fail. But if you're in an environment that says you can fail and still succeed, would that kind of coaching, do you think, have made a difference to you? Most definitely. And I think you're completely right on the cultural piece. I was fortunate enough to live in Florida for just over a year and train out there. And I absolutely loved the culture and environment around sport because it was all about 
praise and positivity and celebrating achievements. Whereas in Britain, where you know, someone will ask me, "Oh, who am I? What do I do?" and I'll say, oh, "I used to be an Olympian." In this country, that's kind of like, "Okay, simmer down." <laughs> so, no, I'm just telling you what I've done. Right? I'm not. I'm not trying to show off. It's just who I am and what I've done. Um, but we're kind of like, we want you to be incredibly successful in the UK, but you're not allowed to know it and you're not allowed to tell anyone about it. Um, whereas in America, yeah, I loved it. Like literally I'd achieved the smallest thing and in America there'd be a party for it. Um, <laughs> and it was great. It was celebrated. So yeah, there is definitely that piece. And, and you know, I, I try and be far more realistic with, with my expectations and kind as well, because I understand there's a journey. I understand that there are ups and downs, whereas when I was a young person and a young athlete, I wasn't allowed to have any imperfections. I saw myself as invincible. I saw myself as perfect, and that's what I demanded. So then any time that was questioned, I would really struggle to be able to handle that because I'd built up this persona that I do not fail in any way. So when that happens, obviously you're you're challenged, and you're challenged when your identity is tied to that. You're challenged a lot deeper than just did something happen within your workplace. And that's really why we're excited to have you on, on this particular podcast, Jack, because there are strong parallels to the world of uh, business and startup businesses and scale-up businesses. Uh, you know, founders do need to feel they need to succeed. And, and in this country, as Shelley has pointed out, you know, sometimes failure is, uh, is deemed very negatively, which puts extra pressure on. So I'm just interested to go back to your story you know, you, you took two years off after the 2012 Olympics, but then you came back in 2014. You went to Florida, as you said, where the environment was so different, of course, not just the climate, but, but the attitude and the culture. And I know that you had a, a mental conditioning coach, a guy called Angus Mugford, um, who really helped you get over some of the, the challenges that you were facing. What did he do with you that made such a difference? Because you ended up two years later representing Britain again at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. So clearly that period of time did you a lot of good. Obviously, there was a lot before Angus with I, I worked with a psychiatrist because I was obviously in a, in a really difficult place. So I worked with a psychiatrist in the Priory in Birmingham in the UK. And he was fantastic. He kind of set those foundations of helping me understand myself and, and get to a really stable place to be able to build and start to thrive. In that two years, the whole plan was to take myself away from high pressure and expectation to be able to create space to manage myself and learn about myself. In reality, all I did was hide from it. So I felt better because no one expected anything of me. So I thought that was job done. I didn't actually learn anything about myself whatsoever. I just hid. So essentially, I ran away from it. And then the only reason I returned to sport was because I didn't know I could do anything else. From the age of seven, that was my goal. And I went professional really early. And that was it. I didn't know I could be anything else. My identity still was Jack the athlete because even when I didn't run, it was, oh, this is Jack the Olympian. Oh, Jack's a runner. Jack's an athlete. It was never Jack's Jack or whatever other pieces I might have of myself. So I was still really attached to it. I was really fortunate that one of the best coaches in the world that's ever lived, Lauren Seagrave in Florida, said, come out to... Florida and work with me. He had worked with world record holders in my event. He thought I still had a lot to give. I didn't really know any better. I felt a bit better because no one expected anything of me. Started the journey again. I met Angus there. I actually was messaging him just before this. Um, he's still really close, which is nice. He's vice president of performance at the New Jersey Devils now. So, And he was in baseball before. And he's an amazing man. 
I can't tell you specifically what he did with me, to be honest. I can tell you that he gave me the space to talk and to work out my own thoughts. And then he would guide me in terms of performance. One of the school of thoughts, and it might not be exactly Angus's, but his kind of group of mental conditioning coaches was around staying neutral. And this is something that I think is really fascinating. And it's the whole point that negative is negative. So negative thinking, we know it's negative. It doesn't particularly help us. But positive thinking also probably isn't where we want to be because positive thinking can set you up for a failure. It might not be realistic. It might not be accurate. Actually, we want to look at every situation and environment that we're in in a neutral mindset. So let's gather the facts and the information before we make a decision of what we want to do next. Because if we're in that fight or flight, that very reactive motion, we're going to do something emotional that we cannot predict. And it's also not repeatable. So any success that comes from you just reacting to a situation isn't repeatable because you don't know why you did it or how you did it. What we want to do is essentially get to that amber light on the traffic light system, give ourselves some space to decide what is the reality here? What's the expectation? Let me take myself out of this personally and decide how I want to react. Because that's the only thing we can control in life is how we react to something. Things are going to happen to me, whether I like it or not. I cannot do anything about that. But what can I do? I can control what I'm going to do about it. Now, I do this too well sometimes, and my partner will tell you she gets incredibly frustrated because I look at everything with literally like no emotion and like, let's look at it logically and how we want to react. And sometimes I get frustrated at myself because sometimes I'm like, I just want to react really emotionally to this. But success and repeatable success has come from, and better decisions and clarity has come from me being able to take that step, take myself out of the situation, analyze it and decide how I want to react. Sometimes that is emotionally, but I've decided I want to. So that's a learning for you that might be interesting around how we make decisions, particularly if we're managing people, because people are a pain. Uh, They're a beautiful pain. That's why I love coaching. People are the biggest variable in the world. They'll bring you challenges, but it's also really rewarding to see them, watch them grow and develop. But that's where we can be incredibly reactive and emotional. And that's where we need to be able to look at the information first. You know, I read something once. It was about Luciano Pavarotti, the opera singer. He said, this is me. I am Luciano Pavarotti, but I'm also the keeper of this tremendous gift, the voice. But the voice and me are not so tied together that I can't be a person. I think that's such a healthy mindset. The voice is a part of me. It isn't all of me. And I think that's why... Sports people struggle when they retire because you are told you have to be 100 miles an hour, 100% all in on this one thing that you are. And then when that goes, the question is, well, who am I? And that's a dangerous thing. So that identity piece is so important. For me, I'm a father, I'm a partner, I'm a son, I'm a friend, I'm an employee, I'm a coach. You're a business person, yeah. Everything, right? I've got so many things. And what's really healthy about that is I can always find some positive, some good in my day of like, oh, or I can close the book on something mm-hmm. and it doesn't spill in. Sometimes it does spill in, of course, I'm a human being, but it doesn't spill in as much into my other identities. So when I, you know, I've worked today, I'll clock off. It might not have been a great day, but I'm going to go back home and I'll pick up my other thing of I am a dad now and I'm going to do that. 
and not everything is bad in my life. Instead of, well, I'm a founder or I'm an athlete. Today hasn't been great. Now I'm going to go home and I'm going to ruin that relationship as well because I can't detach from that part of me. Mm -hmm. It's a really difficult thing to do, but it's so important as we transition and develop. And I imagine you've had probably similar things as exited founders of kind of like you get to the top of the mountain. I'm speaking one of my friends at the moment. He's an exited founder. And he's kind of like, well, I scaled that mountain and I don't really know what to do next because I put everything into that. So it's a huge challenge for so many people. Is it right that you retired at the age of 28, really at the peak of your athletic powers? I mean, you, you, you were still ranked very highly in the world, weren't you at the time? Yeah, I was still top 10 in the world. Uh, I was a European medalist. I'd won a European title. I was a world medalist. Uh, I went to a second Olympics where we would have been medalists had we not been disqualified in the relay. And I just finished fourth at Commonwealth Games. I missed a medal by 200th of a second. I missed a silver by 700th of a second. Not that I'm bitter about it. Not that it's much. <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was ready to rumble. I was expecting myself to at least go to those Olympics in Tokyo and make the final in the hurdles and medal in the relay. But I was really struggling at this point. So I was pretty much bankrupt. I had no money. I'd invested all my money to go out to Florida and train there. Athletics doesn't pay very much at all. Mm. It's pennies. I was working two part-time jobs and doing my keynote speaking to fund my career. I was also coaching myself and training on my own every day. I did that for four years. And by the point they got to 2019, I was just emotionally burnt out, physically burnt out. I just, because I was given everything, but I was given everything and I had no support. Yeah. I made that choice. So that's on me. There wasn't enough support within track and field anyway, but... Not only was I trying to become the best in the world that I, what I was doing, but I was also trying to pay my bills and have the stress of I might not be able to afford the rent this month. Imagine if we were doing that with our employees, right? It just wouldn't work. Number one piece of well-being is pay people on time. Uh, it's the simplest piece of well-being. But yeah, so I was really struggling. My mental health was probably at the worst it's ever been. Um, because I was just, the intensity was too much for me. I wasn't able to sustain it. I didn't have support. So I started working with a counselor and she asked me a question that shaped my career to date. And that was, why would you return to sport? Because my intention at this point was, I'm going to have a season off and then I'm going to come back for Tokyo. I'm going to win an Olympic medal. And I even said it somewhere publicly, I'm going to destroy myself to win a medal at Tokyo. That's how my mindset was. I was willing to sacrifice myself, all of myself. But when she asked me that question of why would you return to the sport, I couldn't come up with one reason as to why I wanted to. It was all the expectation of what other people would expect of me or think of me, or why wouldn't you want to be an athlete? You know, what a glamorous thing to do. It's your dream. Why wouldn't you go to another Olympics? But I couldn't think of one internal reason. So I made the bravest decision today in my whole life, I believe, by saying, no, I'm going to retire at 28. As I said, you peak between 28 and 32. So instead of peaking in sport, I said, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to step away um, because I'm not willing to sacrifice myself anymore. The cost is too big. I was giving too much and getting too little back. And medals didn't actually mean that much to me at that point. So I retired and that's when I yeah, started stepping into the more corporate world, um, but also coaching a lot more, which coaching gives me the most energy of anything and I think it's also the thing I'm best at I think I'm a better coach than I was an athlete and I was a good athlete so 
hopefully I can help a lot of people with coaching. And what sort of coach are you? How, how would you describe your coaching style? And if we were to speak to one of the people that you do coach, what would they say about Jack Green? Very blunt and harsh, but in a kind way. I just have non-negotiables of what I expect and what goes well with that. And why I think it works really well is because I really care about my people. My whole philosophy is if you're thriving personally, you're more likely to thrive professionally. And that whole piece I said earlier about you're a human being 24 hours a day. So it's my responsibility to at least have awareness of you as a human and how you work best. So all my programming is individual. All my athletes do something different. Everyone I coach, I work with them differently. I find out what works for them because that's so important. It has to be personalized. It has to be for the individual. The other piece is I ask them every day how they are as people. I ask them how their family are. I know everything about them as people. And then I adjust off the back of that. Because I care about them as people, I can work them hard because they know I have their best interests at heart. They know that every decision I make is about them as a human being and helping them achieve their goals rather than achieving mine or just because I think they should work harder. Is that something I was thinking about earlier, actually. I haven't talked about it for a long time. I used to, with my athletes a lot, I haven't had a new athlete in a while. I've, I've been sticking with the same ones for a bit. And that is, I will never ask someone to do something that either I haven't done before or I wouldn't be willing to do. Like I will lead in that way. Unfortunately for my athletes, I did the worst event that you can possibly do. So there's a lot that I have done or would be willing to do. But I think that blend between that non-negotiable, let's drive performance standards and care about you at the same time is the real blessing. And I'm no better a coach in terms of knowledge and experience compared to anyone else out there. But the reason I've got results with athletes when others haven't is because I care about them as a whole human being. And I look at that as the picture rather than just the two hours you're with me. But I think also you just said something important, which we heard from somebody else fairly recently. Don't just take advice from a mentor unless that mentor has already done what you're trying to do, has already been in the space, has already experienced it versus somebody who's sort of looking at it from the outside. And that's kind of what you're saying. You know, you can talk to people very directly because you've been there, you've done it, and that is invaluable to people. They can identify with that and trust you in ways that are different from somebody who, you know, is an observer. I think the the key there, though, is you have to start with the caring piece because mm-hmm. you have to build that that psychological safety and that credibility of I care about you before I can demand what you do, right? Not that demand is, is what we're ever going for, but it's that trust that I am asking you to do something that you might not want to do and might not be completely make sense in your mind. But the reason I'm doing it is because I care about you and I want you to thrive. And I think this is the best way we can do this for you. So you need to trust me, but you can't just go in there and say, do this first. To what extent, Jack, does that relate to the business world? Because there are a lot of similarities, you know, business leaders, startup founders, uh, etc., share the same sort of challenges. You know, they, they make big sacrifices. They take on huge amounts of risk. There are targets that they need to hit, perhaps to satisfy investors, etc. So to what extent is there a parallel between the world of high performance sport to the world of let's hope for high performance business. 
there will be some pain and there will be some hard work along the way to get to the glamorous, exciting bit where your CV says this or you can put on your LinkedIn this and that. There is a cost. And I think the problem that we have within well-being and also within anything we start is we don't make it clear what that cost is and if we're willing to pay it. I think with well-being, we try and go, everything should be nice and fair and easy. The reason I've done well in well-being is because I don't work that way. I understand that performance is where we're going and it will have some difficult times but how do we have the foundation of well-being to help us get there so we've talked about things before around those micro moments of recovery and I think the really easy way to look at this is from a sports aspect how do we apply this business sports people are obsessed with recovering it's the number one thing everyone's well we recover physically and we have all these this tech and all these tools to recover But that's because it's as simple as when I put a lot out, I need to bring a lot back in so I can do it again. And the problem we have within business is we don't have that way of looking at things. We just put it all out and we keep going, let's keep putting it all out and then wonder why we break. And we have this kind of mentality or culture that we work for 11 months and destroy ourselves so we can have four weeks off. And guess what? No one recovers in that four weeks because you've done too much damage. Or zero weeks off. (laughs) Or zero weeks, right? Especially if you're a founder, zero. (laughs) But you've already done the damage. Yeah. Whereas how I look at it is you've got a certain amount in the tank. That's all you can give on that day and that's fine. That's exactly the measure we want. Some days you have to go beyond into your reserves, but they are reserves for a reason. They are not to be used all the time. And if you go into those reserves, you best put them back in. So how do we find those moments of recovery and be a lot kinder to ourselves so that we can keep performing? Because no one became a superstar by being great on one day. The same way no one became useless by being rubbish on one day. We want that sustainable excellence and that's kind of where I come in on the recovery piece and try and bring those lessons from sport because we are obsessed with recovering because we know how important it is. How do you convince then founders to actually accept that there's a healthier way forward for a founder with those mini recoveries rather than working, you know, pretty much 24-7 as as most founders do. You know, I, I know I was guilty of that. And Shelley, I think uh, you probably were as well. Yeah. yeah. It's a great question because it is hard and everyone's individual. I'm also someone that would happily put in 24 hours a day, right? I've had to work on that and get to that point. I, I have a high capacity. I abuse it. Sometimes I abuse it too much and I've had to learn about that. And actually, it's that whole prioritization of quality. More is always more. More is not always better. And we have a thing within sport, and I do this with my athletes, they might have another rep left or whatever it is. And we just weigh it up of, is it worth doing that rep or will it take away from tomorrow? And would I rather you live to fight another day? Heroes aren't remembered, right? Really. Or if they are, it's because they died too early right? They did something stupid. We don't need heroes. We need that person who keeps going. And, and that's where I kind of look at, let's prioritize. Where should you be putting your energy? Where's the, the quality? Where's the bang for your buck? Because we can always do something. I'll always find something to do. Of course I can. Everyone can. But it doesn't mean it's worth my time or I should be doing it. Or it's that juice and the squeeze piece and why I retired. All right, if I'm going to give this, am I going to get more back for it? It's that cost piece we just talked about. If I'm going to do this, 
what's the cost to it? If the cost is actually, I'm going to have all of next week off, nah, it's not good. Look at sport. You look at the most successful teams in the world, successful sports people are the ones that do the most training in terms of cumulative, consistent training because they're not getting injured on a given day and missing four weeks. So when I talk about that piece of live to fight another day, it's like you could do one more run, but you might get injured. We're at an opportunity here of tipping over, of hurting yourself. And I would rather you're able to miss one rep so that we don't miss four to six weeks because I know you will gain more in four to six weeks than you will gain from that one thing. Periodization and how we plan training so you can be at your best is something that's really important and that we need to bring into business. It's just not as simple to do that because business just keeps going and going and it doesn't really, unless you're in certain parts, you might be an accountant or and you know this these months I'm going to be having to put in more so I can recover in others. But typically business is just always happening and you can't predict completely when. Well, you know, there is this feeling that, especially in the startup world, competition, you know, well, I work this hard. Well, I work that hard. Well, I work three times as hard. There's kind of this feeling that you have to show how hard you're working. You do have the parallel of injury, but not physical injury. So it's harder to explain to people how that attitude of just work harder and harder and harder and harder can lead to injury, just a different sort. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I do a lot of executive coaching, mentoring as well. And a lot of this is building self-awareness so people can actually ask themselves the question. So one of the questions I ask a lot when I know I've worked with quite a few recruiters, for example, we know that's a, that's a hard job and they put in those hours and they work incredibly long hours and, and high intensities. But I'll ask the question sometimes of like, how long do you think you can do this for? How are you working right now, today? How much more you got of that? And they'll be like, oh, probably only a couple of weeks. I'm like, cool, now we're getting on to something because now you can be like, oh, I know I've got this much capacity. How am I going to then make sure that I can keep doing that or bring it back in certain ways? And where can I be smarter? The more I coach and, and the mentors I've had in coaching who are some of the best coaches in the world, they always say the more they learn, the more they take out of their training programs, their athletes do less. The easiest thing to do is to give people more. Because if you don't hit targets, you don't hit something, you go, well, I worked all the hours that I could be given, so it's not my fault. Well, it is your fault because you didn't do the right things. And that's where actually where the success should be is, are you doing the right things? And are you doing the things that will help you win? And in terms of that, I work this many hours culture, it's just bizarre because you should be celebrated for, guess what? I work not many hours and I'm successful. Isn't that the, the win-win, right? It's hard to do because you have to be really prioritized. In the end, I only care about your results, right? When I went to Olympic Games, we didn't all cross the line and go, oh, right, so you won, but you did more hours. And oh, but I did more hours than you, so you should give me the gold medal. No, it was just the result. No one cared how you got there, right? It was all our own journey. So the journey is for you and no one else. The result is then if you want to compare, if you want to go down that road, which is a hard road anyway, then look at the results at the end of the day focus on your own journey and you'll all have a different journey to get there because you're all individuals. Well, part of it is understanding the goal where in sports, okay, you know, it's a medal, it's a time, it's a tangible goal that you're going after. In business, it's a little less tangible in some ways. So it's hard to evaluate. So people just work at it. 
Yeah. It's like they're not sure where they're going or how to lead the company. So let me just work really hard. And also, we don't, as founders, celebrate many successes along the way because we don't really know how much of a success that is. You, maybe you close a contract or something. You should celebrate that. And, and maybe, as Jack has explained, take a micro recovery moment, if that's the right phrase, to replenish energy uh, and, and to go forward again. In the sports world, it's very, very clear that everyone gets a coach. You know, there are lots of coaching and you've had lots of coaches over the years. But in business, it's much more of a rare thing for a founder to get a mentor. To what extent do you think it's really important in business that business should adopt the sports model of coaching and mentoring? Oh, hugely. It's how we learn. I went from being an athlete to being global well-being lead at BBC. I did that during the pandemic before then coming into startups and the provider side of, of well-being. I only learned what I've learned because I had amazing people who gave me their time and answered questions. It's also the quickest way to learn because I just went directly with, I've got these problems, how did you overcome them? I think it's the number one thing. As you said, in sports, I coached myself for four years and it was the rarest thing. No professional athlete in my sport at the level I was did that. And you know what? It limited me because I didn't carry on learning as quickly as I could have because it was on me to go and find that information and then teach myself. I was just in a vacuum rather than being able to bounce those ideas or someone else see something a bit different that could help challenge me and move me forward. And I think that's also something with founders, which is why we talk about having more than one founder, right? Is actually, you don't want too many, but having a co-founder is great because you get challenged and there's different ideas and ways of thinking. It doesn't have to be a co-founder. It can be people that you bring into the team or mentors or coaches. But I think the reason why it's not normal within business is because everyone's in their own business striving for it. And I think talking about the comparison piece, there's a little bit of that where sharing knowledge hasn't been so, not in my experience in three years, hasn't been so normal because it's competitive and this is my intellectual property and not sharing it so then the coaches that are available are very expensive and probably not specific to what you do and there's probably not an easy way to find them I don't know a particularly easy way to find the right people other than my network and asking around and doing some outbound essentially so I do think it's important I do think it's the quickest way you can learn I think learning from best practice and worst practice is the way to go just having conversations, talking to as many people as possible is so important. What are you seeing in the well-being space? You talk about startups in that space. And what are the trends? What are you seeing? What What's technology doing? I think there's too many providers is number one and not enough quality. I think we've all jumped off the back of COVID and this oh, there's money available and there's a pain, let's let's solve it with something. And pretty much everyone's just done a content play of varying content. And it's a bit of a wild west. It's not that verified. And yeah, I think it's a really, really difficult market right now for well-being. And actually the next step is how do you show impact, um, which is you know what I've been looking for. We've got the awareness piece. Cool, that's great. We've got some content and some low-level education, but we're not seeing any impact. We're not seeing actual changes in an organization because these things at the moment are nice to have rather than actually solving the pain. It's a really difficult market. I do think it's settling a little bit at the moment. I think there was a hype curve with COVID coming down a little bit. It will settle where it needs to be. And the providers that are left 
are going to be the ones that genuinely have a mission of wanting to help people, but also will be high quality because they're the only ones that have survived. Yeah. And what's the secret uh, of, of making this work, Jack? What, what's your own personal view as to what these providers should do to really crack the code here? If I knew that, I'd have my own startup, I think. <laughs> Maybe we can help you with that. <laughs> or I'll be coaching a lot more people. Yeah. Um, no, I do think it's the impact piece. I think it's the. I think everyone gets excited by SaaS and technology, but the problem with well-being is well-being so personal that you can't take the human being out of it. So how do we make that piece scalable is the challenge. Um, And I think also going back to almost that goals piece of, well, actually, what do we want to achieve as as a founder, as a startup? We don't all have to be the next Amazon. And I think that needs to be understood. And I don't think people ask that question enough at the start. So, Jack, uh, just a final question to to wrap up what has been an absolutely brilliant conversation with you. What one or two key pieces of advice would you give founders or startup leaders or business leaders in general advice around high performance? Number one is there's no solo, there's no individual. It's that whole thing of it takes a village. Find people that can help. Understand where they play their part. Not everyone should be on the journey with you the whole way. Not everyone should do whatever. They can be parts. They don't have to be completely in your business. But find people who can support you because you'll get to where you want to be a lot quicker. It's no different to listening to your customers, right? Same thing. That's a part of it. But have your your kind of customers and your people you're going to listen to and get feedback from and, and try and develop and, and progress. And then I think this, the second bit is... How you measure yourself, because I want people to be great long-term, not short-term. So start measuring yourself on effort every day. Understand you're a human being. Understand there's variables. You might not sleep so well. You might have financial stress, whatever it might be. You've only got a certain amount in the tank. Give what you can on that day, and that is okay, because the person who keeps winning is the one that wins overall, not the one that wins on a single day because they gave too much. Well, on that uh, fantastic piece of advice there, Jack, we thank you very much for your time today uh, and for sharing all of your very candid thoughts, experiences and advice. So uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Best of luck to you, really. I want to see that new uh, well-being startup that you're going to uh, found. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, Shelley, I found that a a very different but truly inspirational conversation with Jack. Uh, We covered so much ground. I found it very moving to hear some of the struggles that he went through, and he was fairly honest about those. But I think what was the really great part was how he has turned his life into something so positive. And this coaching and helping people, um, I thought he's the perfect guy for this because he's very genuine very authentic. He's been through it and he's come out in a very positive way on the other side. Talked about how do you make decisions in a way that is appropriate or proper or the best kind of decision-making process. And he said, you know, it's easy to be very, very negative. We, we all have that in us in some way or another. It's also a bit artificial to be totally positive because those are two extremes. He said, you need to keep yourself in the middle and gathered the facts. And that resonated with me, you know, as a scientific person. Mm. 
you know, you still may make an emotional decision, but you've done it by going through the process in the first place. So, so that was one thing I, I thought was actually very valuable. I asked him about his coaching style. He said, well, his coaching style is firm, but fair. And it, you know, he's got a number of non-negotiables. And at the end of the day, he feels that he can get the best out of his people that he coaches because he cares about them. He cares about them as people, as human beings. And for that reason, he feels he can demand a lot out of them. Yeah, it's this idea of trust. If, say, you're a founder and you have the kind of relationship with your staff where people trust that you are there to do the best for the company, for them, you know, it isn't competition, um, then you can be direct and, and the whole thing works in a very different way. We talked, if you remember, about the difference between the U.S. and the U.K., in terms of failing. And that one of the things that's a positive attribute about the U.S. business community is you can fail and you can come back. It's not the death knell. Um, And he talked about a way of dealing with that is to celebrate trying, celebrate the small victories along the way, rather than waiting for the great big party at the end because you've climbed the mountain. Celebrate wins along the way, because that creates an environment of achievement. Yeah, absolutely. He said, uh, in America, you achieve the smallest things, and then you throw a party. That's right. We like parties. Well, the other one for me was about uh, the micro recovery. You know, I, I, I was keen, we were both keen to bring out the parallels between being an athlete, you know, and coaching with with the world of business and he talks about um the micro moments of recovery where it's important to recover and clearly from an athletics point of view that's true isn't it you know you you train very hard but you need to recover so your muscles recover your mind recovers but we as founders and business leaders we're not very good at that are we no and you know um he used the word sustainable a number of times because i think what he's trying to do is help people develop a sustainable way of achieving, not just a superstar that then, you know, a Nova that blasts into this outer space and then dies. You know, he said, uh, you, you can always work harder, but are you doing the right things? You can always push people to do more, 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 but is more better or is it just more? Next time on Startup Sensations. We spend about $1.2 trillion every single year on food, which is wasted. It is the equivalent of the entire GDP of Mexico. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast.